So children, welcome. Thank you so much for being uh, with us today. Uh, there is a break from the children's ministry for uh, most of the classes. So if you hear a bit more chatter today, uh, th- now we know. That's why. Um, so a few years ago, my wife Molly and I uh, were back home uh, where I grew up in Olathe, Kansas, and my dad took us to a KU basketball game. Uh, do we have any Jayhawks fans here? All right, rock chalk, there we go, great, super. Um, If you don't know what rock chalk is, we can talk after the service. Um, I am not a sports ball fan, by the way, so I'm just gonna be vulnerable with you for a moment. This opening illustration is gonna be a challenge for me. Um, But I'm going on a limb, and hopefully you can be gracious with me in response. So Kansas basketball has a lot of history to it because Jim Naismith, the inventor of basketball, he coached there. And then the man who followed after him, Fog Allen, who got his name because he had a very sort of like bullhorn kind of uh, uh, tone to his voice. Um, So he also coached after Naismith. And uh, he, was, he was called the, the father of uh, basketball coaching. And so these two are like saints in, in the realm of college basketball. And so when you go to a game there, you see these signs all over the place that are like, beware of the fog. You know, it's, it's very eerie and chilling. You know, it's, it's supposed to be intimidating to the opponents of the Jayhawks. And then when you're sitting there in the bleachers is what they're called. I almost called them pews, but in the bleachers, um, you, you see the jerseys of former retired, uh, uh, not retired, but uh, the jerseys that have been retired of famous ball players. So you know that when you're stepping into this place, that this is a place of deep history. In fact, when we were there, uh, I, I guess they had just created this like attached museum or something so that during halftime you can actually go and, and see like artifacts and relics of KU basketball there. You know, it's, it's a very um, uh, encapsulating sort of environment. So before the, the game begins, the lights kind of dim a little bit, and then up there on the Jumbotron, they play this video whose purpose is to like rile you up, get you on board, and get you excited. Like the music is super loud, it, it's thumping, you know, like you can just feel it in your chest cavity. And the, on the screen, they're playing these sort of like old-timey, like historical videos of, of KU basketball players uh, telling the story. But then also interspersed with this is some more modern players who are like, you know, juking past their opponents who are like taking it down to the court and, and slamming, doing a slam dunk. Uh, these are correct terms, right? Okay, yeah, doing a slam dunk over their, opponent, over their enemies and just thoroughly embarrassing them. So it's a really cool experience. And as someone who's not into sports, like, we were caught up into this. Like, it was super, I was caught up into this. Okay, yeah, it was super fun. Um, because there's all of this, like, memorabilia, you know, around there. And it, the point became clear, like, even before the game started, that you're not there just to watch a game. When you're there, you're stepping into history. Like you're becoming a part of something bigger than just yourself or even something bigger than that particular game at that moment. And perhaps maybe a more accurate way to say it is that by being there, history was actually coming forward and sitting down with you. The the history of all of this tradition and and hoopla and whatever is now entering the here and the now. And then the game begins. And then you're really participating. 
I mean, even though you might not be a player there, like you're cheering on your team and you feel that by your encouragement, they are somehow going to be able to perform better because you're there cheering them on. And then when the other team has the ball, you're kind of heckling them, right? Like you're trying to distract them, especially if they're shooting a, um, a free throw. Is that, yeah, a free throw. You know, you're trying to distract them to make them lose points or whatever. Because you're, the idea is that by participating in this, you're able to experience what the players are experiencing. And if, you, if they lose, then it's your loss. If it's their win, then it's your win. You get to share in the glory of that victory. Now, I wonder, is there a word that sort of encapsulates all of this experience, all of this participatory history, all of this significance that's happening there? And I think there is. The word for it is liturgy. Bear with me on this. And if you've read Jamie Smith, you know where I'm going with this. So a simple way to read litur- or to, to define liturgy is just an order for things, right? Like every human institution, every gathering of human beings has some sort of liturgy to it, right? It could be understood simply as an order for doing things. But I think that there's an even better definition than that. Liturgy is a path to glory. Liturgy is a path to glory. There's a, an image, a portrait of glory, the good life, what we all should have. And then there's a particular journey and the means for achieving that glory. So, for example, in the sports arena, the glory is the victory itself. It's, it's being able to vanquish your enemies and telling them to go back home because <laughs> they've been defeated. And the pathway to that is achieved through skill and discipline and strength. But every human institution has a liturgy to it. The mall has a liturgy to it. What's the glory that's promised to you when you go to the mall? What's popularity? It's acceptance. And the way that you achieve it is by buying the right things. It's by paying attention to the right trends so that you can be accepted in the right crowd, that you can achieve the glory of popularity. The concert hall has a liturgy. If you know and you love the music, then you sing along with it, or you might raise your hands or jump or something as you're participating in the music, right? And the glory that's promised to you there is transcendent beauty of some type. Depending on what kind of music you like, we can maybe argue about what that beauty actually is. There's a liturgy of school, right, kids? The promise of school is that if you obtain the right knowledge or the right skills, then you'll be able to solve the world's problems. And there's glory that's associated with that. Now, don't think that by my tone or that the fact that I'm using this as a sermon illustration, that that I'm somehow painting those things in a negative light. I'm not saying that. Please still go to school. Um, Sports can be fun and enjoyable and give a great amount of leisure to our lives. And it's, it's never a good idea to go to the mall. I'm not going to approve going to the mall. <laughs> but these liturgies need to be enjoyed in their proper order. So what about us? What about what we're gathering here for today? What about Christian liturgy? What is the glory that we're trying to obtain to here? And what is the pathway to getting that, to obtaining it? Are we like the sports arena? where we think that glory is obtained through hard work, bearing down, rolling up your sleeves, and achieving some kind of spiritual victory in your life? Or are we like the mall, where you have to put on the right clothes and maybe put on the right happy face in order to be accepted by this community? 
Or maybe you might think that church is sort of like a school and that if you just learn the right knowledge and sort of obtain the right facts, if you can be the fastest at the sword, sword drills or whatever, that you will then attain knowledge of God and be more acceptable to him and that all of your problems will be solved. What's the purpose of our liturgy? Well, we read it actually. We read it in a number of places, but what I want to focus in on today is our psalm, Psalm 100, especially that final verse. Did you hear that? It's almost so cliche that it doesn't even register with us, right? So I hope you caught it. So verse 5 says, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. What a profound and elegant statement. Tucked within that statement is, is, is the gospel itself, that God is good and that he extends his faithfulness generation to generation. And then throughout this psalm, we're, we're given the, the tools to experience that. But we see that both God's goodness and his love are offered to us, his people. And so from this, you can extrapolate. You could, you could, you know, it's as if this verse is like a backpack. You can pull out from it everything that we do in our liturgy here in an Anglican service. In fact, let me kind of tease that out a little bit. So when the service begins, the first words out of the priest's mouth are, Blessed be God, which is a way of saying, The Lord is good. And that theme of God's goodness just carries out throughout the arc of the service. What happens after that? Well, then we have our liturgy of the word, and that is we, we enter into the stories of God's people. This is a living word. We enter into the stories, and as we remember, that's more than just recalling this to mind. It's we're actually participating in it, mystically, spiritually participating in it, and receiving the beauty and the truths of those passages. In fact, I, the psalm, when we read it this, this morning, it was this calling back and forth, right? Very participatory. And that's not just so that it gives you guys something to do. No, we're praying the same things that God's people have been praying for generations, predating the incarnation of Jesus. I mean, this psalm is so incredibly ancient. And then we read the gospel passage. It's, it's read from the middle of the room to remind us that God is the incarnate Jesus Christ, that he stands among us, that his scripture is read among us, that he is the living word that has direct application to our day and our lives today. And then what do we do? We, we move to the liturgy of the table, and here we actually receive the love of God. We participate in the love of God. We, we extend our hands and hold them out, and we, we hold in our hands the glory of God, that his presence is there in us, among us, and we consume it. And then we take the cup and we, we drink the salvation of God, that his blood has been poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. And this elevates our soul. It brings levity to our soul. So finish this Bible verse for me. Taste and see that that is what our Eucharistic liturgy is accomplishing. We are tasting and seeing the goodness of God in that moment. So like I said, the theme of God's goodness carries throughout the service. And then we sing some more, and then together we stand and we say the prayer of thanksgiving. And we say, thank you, God, for feeding us a spiritual food, for dwelling with us, for being with us. And so now we can go out into the troublesome world and face anything, because God is with us, that we've experienced him. 
that we've tasted and seen his goodness. So liturgy is a path to glory. That is what this psalm is about. This is what scripture is about. This is what our our worship is about. And the church gets this wrong when we take those other liturgies of those other human institutions and we try to apply them to the church. Because we have this rich heritage that we've received from our spiritual mothers and fathers. But so much of the American church has, has rejected that liturgy and taken upon itself the liturgies of the mall, of the sports arena, of the theater, of the school. But those liturgies were designed to communicate something else. Those liturgies were designed to take you to a different idea of glory. But the church's liturgy that, that we have received, that is a liturgy that brings us to no less than God himself. That is the glory that we experience. So let's talk a little bit more about Psalm 100. So the entire book of Psalms formed the liturgy of God's people. It still does. Uh, in fact, even if you, if you pick up the red prayer book that's in there, in the middle is the Psalter, is the book of Psalms for us, used for worship. So scholars believe that this Psalm, Psalm 100, it was, was used by the Jewish people as a call to worship. And it's very obvious as you read this, right? So you see all of these calls to worship. In verses 1 and 2, we read, make a joyful noise. That's what the kids were doing uh, as we were reading the scriptures and stuff. They were making joyful noises. Right, kids? Yeah, great. Okay. <laughs> we also uh, were, were told to serve the Lord. That's what we do on Sunday teams and reading the scriptures and serving communion is we're, we're serving one another and also serving the Lord. And then we're told to come into his presence with singing. This is a singing congregation. Praise the Lord. And then down in verses four and five, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks. That's what we do. We give thanks. Eucharist at the table. And then bless his name. So those are six imperatives, six verbs, six commands, six invitations to Christian worship to enter in and to experience God. That's the pathway to experiencing God. Come into his courts, serve with the community, sing with joy and gladness and blessing. But what about the glory? What is the glory that we're after when we gather here today? Is it personal fame? Is it for all of our problems to be solved? Is it acceptability? What, what is it that we're trying to glean here? Well, we're not pursuing our own prestige. We are in pursuit of God himself, the creator of the universe. We are in pursuit of God. Do you know that? That when you step in here and we hear his word proclaimed over you and we, we receive from his table that, that we're actually hearing God and experiencing God and being touched by God himself. And the psalm makes this clear. There in the heart of the psalm, in the middle of the psalm, it says, know the Lord, Yahweh, know God. Well, who is this Lord God? I'm glad you asked because the psalm actually answers that for us too. It tells us three things about God. First, it says, he is the one who made us. Now, it's easy for us to kind of assume that, that the psalm is referring to creation in that moment, which isn't not true, but it's actually more specific than that. The, the psalm here is talking about the creation of the Jewish people, of the nation Israel. God created the nation Israel. As the Kenyan prayer book says, which we prayed through a few weeks ago, it says, from a wandering nomad, you created a nation. You see, God is a God of order. 
And he calls forth his people so that he can give them the necessary rules necessary to experience a flourishing life. He rescued them from slavery, from this lawless way of living. And he takes them out and he gives them the law. But secondly, we also learn we are his and we are his people. In other words, we belong to God. As our Exodus reading said today, we are his treasured possession. How beautiful is that? God says over and over throughout the Old Testament, you belong to me and I belong to you. And as people who, uh, people of the New Testament, we see this supremely through God's son, Jesus Christ, who came down to earth when we were rebelling against him. He drew near to us in the person, Jesus Christ. And then upon the cross, he paid the debt for all of our sin and trespasses, a debt that we ourselves were not capable of paying. And then by him rising up to life again, he assures us that the debt is paid and that we also can follow after him and experience that abundant life with him. And it begins when, when our faith is placed in him and, our, and that life with him will extend through this life and in the age to come as well. Because the Lord cherishes you, he wants to claim you as his own, as his people. And that brings us to the third characteristic that we hear of God here. The psalmist says, we are the sheep of his pasture. You see, God led Israel through the desert and gives them a home. He gives them a pasture. He tends to their wounds. So he doesn't just redeem them and kind of set them out on a shelf or something. No, he's actually actively involved in the healing and restoration of his people generation to generation. He built walls and gates for his people so they can enter into his courts and sing praises to his name without fear of attack of the, out, of, of the enemy, a place where they can come and give thanksgiving to him. So the psalm tells us that the Lord is good, and it shows us that the Lord is good. This is the glory of God that we get to participate in, that we get to experience. We get to fellowship with the beautiful one, God himself. And so you can hear the joy that just sort of permeates up from this psalm. It's just such a celebratory psalm, isn't it? And it's not pretend joy. This isn't false joy. It's not like the people are just kind of saying these mantras so that they can kind of of make the, the bad thoughts go away. No, this is a joy that comes from experience from lived actual experience. Because remember, the Jews are a people who they absolutely know pain and suffering. That is a path that is so familiar to them. They've been enslaved. They've been nomadic. They've been harassed, exiled, oppressed. They are a people familiar with despair. But by immersing themselves in this psalm and the other psalms and the stories of their people, they are reminded that God is good and his faithfulness endures from generation to generation, that his goodness is bigger than any problem that could come their way, whatever that might be. So I mentioned last week that uh, the season, the liturgical season that our church is in right now is called ordinary time. And that doesn't mean boring or plain. It means that God has given us everything necessary in this life to have an ordered life, so that we can experience peace with him. So this psalm, Psalm 100, 
It's included in our Anglican morning prayer services, uh, right alongside the Venite. This one is called the Jubilate, uh, which is Latin for give joy, which comes from the first few words of this psalm. So if you've been doing morning prayer, um, which is, is a good practice to be in, uh, then that means that your soul has been shaped by this psalm for a very long time. And the same way in which you, hopefully, have received encouragement from this psalm, so have our spiritual mothers and fathers before us. These words have sustained us for a very, very long time. So what roots you these days? What are you grounded in these days? What are you anchored in? How do you find peace and solace for your soul these days? It's not hard to argue that we are in a stormy world, right? It's a troublesome, tumultuous world that we live in. And the waves and the wind of this world crash upon us and beat us down as individuals, as, as families, as households, as friends, as a church community. It is not easy these days. And so my question is, is what roots you? What grounds you? What are the liturgies of your life? What are the patterns of, of, of activity that you're involved in? What are the habits of mind that you're involved in? And what is the glory that that is directing you towards? And how does that place within the other liturgies of your life? What are the stories that capture your heart, that excite you? And how do they form your affections? How do they direct your love towards God? Because here's the thing. It's only God who gives us a pathway out of the troublesome storms of this world. It's only him and his presence and his love and his blessing that can supersede all of it, that can transcend all of it. And he gives us the path. It's through his son, Jesus Christ, who's given us the church, the fellowship with other believers. He's given us rich liturgies and traditions, and not just for the sake of maintaining old ways of doing things, but because this is how we actually get to experience God, how we can taste and see his goodness. The pathway that he's given us is, is scriptural. It's rooted in the Bible. It's Eucharistic. That is, it, it lifts us up to give thanks to the Lord, and we can experience him through the holy table. But also, these liturgies are spirit-filled. We're able to come side along one another and, and listen to God speaking to us through these things. His pathway is worship. It is a life tuned to him and directed to him. And the glory that we're after is God himself. It's God himself. He welcomes us into his presence, into his heart, and we get to dwell with him and be with him forever. And you can endure anything when you're with the Lord Jesus. Thanks be to God. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness endures for all generations. Please pray with me. Lord God, you are good. You are the loving one, and you are beautiful. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us alone in our troublesome world. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us alone even when we were rebelling against you. But Jesus, you drew near to us. You paid for our sin upon the cross, and you rose to new life again, promising that we can follow after you. So Lord, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us afresh today. 
Lord, may you cleanse us. May you make us new again. Form us more into your likeness, Lord Jesus Christ, because we want to be like you, the glorious one, the noble one, the true one, the king of peace, the king of glory. We ask all of this, Lord, in your name. Amen.